Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk familex, the words and phrases unique to your family, the in-jokes that make no sense outside your home. These private languages bind us, and they likely took off during the pandemic with people spending more time in close quarters. First, though, we'll talk with The Washington Post's David Farenthold about what it means for the Trump Organization now that New York Attorney General Letitia James's civil investigation has also become a criminal investigation. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced this week that her office is criminally investigating the Trump Organization. The office has been engaged in a civil investigation, but now things have apparently evolved. To understand what this means for former President Trump and his business associates, we're joined now by David Farenthold, Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter who covers the Trump family and its business interests. Welcome back to Forum, David Farenthold. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you being here. And can you explain, so why is this significant? What does it tell us about the New York Attorney General's investigation? Well, the Attorney General hasn't said what she found that caused her to move this investigation from civil to criminal. But we've talked to people who worked in her office about, you know, past decisions that were like this, past times when they moved a civil investigation into criminal status. And what they said is that usually that, that means that there's been a discovery of some evidence that shows someone's intent. The difference between a civil investigation and a criminal one, a civil investigation where you're just going to file a lawsuit, what you want to know is, did somebody do something wrong? Was a law broken? You don't have to know why they did it or if they knew that what they were doing was wrong. You just have to know that the law was broken. A criminal case, though, requires some knowledge of intent, that you can figure out that somebody knew what they were doing was wrong or that it was against the rules and they did it anyway. And so when you find evidence that shows that kind of an intent of a particular person or set of people, that's when you can move to a criminal inquiry. So that was their read, was that James must have found something here that shows someone's intent. And so, and in addition to the fact that you are determining that someone 
potentially did something on purpose. The penalties are, of course, greater in a civil investigation. It's mainly financial. With criminal, it could be much more than that. Um, before we get into it, though, I, I want to ask you more about this civil investigation. What has been the AG's civil investigation up to this point, the focus of it? And while you're explaining it, if you could also just give us a sense of the scope of the Trump organization and what part of this she is really focused on. The New York Attorney General's investigation began in 2019 in response to, if you remember, Michael Cohen, who was Trump's former lawyer, went in front of Congress and said that Trump routinely would uh, inflate the value of his assets, artificially inflate the value of his assets in order to get benefits on his taxes or to, to impress lenders, make lenders think he's a better credit risk. So she starts looking into that particularly. And so she's looking at this company, the Trump Organization it's a, it's a pretty small company at its core. Its assets include some office buildings in New York. Uh, it's got about 11 hotels. It's got about 15 golf courses around the world. Uh, it's not much more than that. So she starts looking at uh, the Trump Organization's conduct basically in the 10 years before Trump ran for office starting in 2015. And it, it was a really fast-moving investigation from what we can tell. The Attorney General zeroes in on five or six different transactions that she appears to think Trump, you know, where, where Trump manipulated the values of his assets in ways that could be fraudulent. And those include some conservation easements he got on a couple of properties, basically where he said, look, I have this big property and I'm not going to develop it into a subdivision, but that means I'm giving up some potential value in the future. So I'm going to take the, the lost value as a loss and count it on my taxes. Um, she blinks that, that perhaps Trump exaggerated how much he could have sold those properties for in order to exaggerate the tax break he got for basically not developing them. And then there's another case where Trump got a $100 million plus loan, $100 million plus loan forgiven on his Chicago Tower in 2008. Lender decided Trump wasn't going to pay it back, forgave more than $100 million worth of debt. In that case, most of the time, if you have $100 million worth of debt forgiven, you have to count it as income for your taxes. And James was interested in figuring out, well, did Trump really do that? Did he pay the proper taxes on this $100 million plus of forgiven debt? So really looking at whether or not you say exaggerated about the value of his assets in order to secure basically reduce his tax liability, secure better loans, and that kind of a thing. Now, the Trump Organization is no stranger to civil litigation brought previously by the New York Attorney General. What tended to happen in those cases? Oh, you're right. He's, this is the third time that he's faced a big investigation from the New York Attorney General. The first one was about Trump University, which was the, the sort of uh, pretend, pretend school that Trump had that where the Attorney General alleged that Trump had defrauded his so-called students by promising them things he didn't teach them. And uh, then there was, in 2018, a lawsuit about the Trump Foundation, this charity that Trump ran, where he misused its money to buy portraits of himself, to pay off business settlements, and to help his 2016 campaign. In both of those cases, uh, the attorney general filed suit against Trump, and it ended with monetary damages for Trump. In the Trump University case, Trump settled the New York AG's lawsuit, along with some other class action lawsuits about the same school, for a total of $25 million. In the, in the Trump, uh, found, Trump Foundation case, Trump was ordered to shut the foundation down and pay $2 million in damages by a New York judge. So he has gotten the, uh, you know, the brunt of these investigations twice, but it's only been in terms of monetary damages. That's the worst the New York AG has done to him. And do you think it would be different in this case? I mean, for just because the AG is saying that they've opened a criminal investigation doesn't mean that anyone in the Trump organization will face criminal charges, right? 
That's right. Uh, it's important to know that there is a separate investigation going on by the Manhattan District Attorney, a different state level prosecutor in New York since 2018 of the same company, the same Trump organization. That investigation, the DA's investigation is criminal. So its goal, whereas the attorney general's investigation, the goal until recently had been to file a lawsuit, the goal of the DA's investigation all along has been to file criminal charges against somebody if, if the evidence supports it. And so uh, what's happened now is the, the New York attorney general has taken a little piece of her investigation. We don't quite know what that piece is, but wherever she thinks she's found criminal intent and sort of merged her investigation with the DA's investigation. So if there's going to be cr criminal charges brought against Trump or anybody in his orbit, it'll happen sort of jointly with the DA and the AG. How often does that happen where an investigation by the AG merges with the DA? It's not very common. Uh, the, the one problem for the attorney general is New York law, unlike a lot of other states, the attorney general is kind of limited in her ability to bring criminal charges. There's only sort of a, a set of you know, a limited set of circumstances in which she can on her own bring criminal charges. So it's a lot easier in this case, if she wants to bring criminal charges, to just do it along with the Manhattan DA, where that's all they do is bring criminal charges. We're talking with David Farenthold, a reporter covering the Trump family and its business interests for The Washington Post. He also won a Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for his investigation of Trump's charities. We're talking about the New York Attorney General's decision this week to open a criminal investigation of the Trump Organization and what that means for the former president, his associates and family. And you can weigh in with your questions, your reactions to this. What do you want to know about the New York investigations into Trump's businesses? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweeted, how can you prove mens rea in an accused famous for believing, apparently sincerely, truckloads of things at variance with reality? Wow, that's uh, quite a comment. But essentially, as you were saying, proving a criminal case is really challenging, David Farenthold, because you have to reveal a person's intent. Uh, can you talk about sort of what tends to be the best ways to prove that in a case? If you're a prosecutor, what are you really looking for? Well, I, I, in a lot of cases, what they look for is emails. You know, that's the that's the, the easiest way to get somebody now is that an executive will send an email indicating that they knew what they were doing was wrong and they're doing it anyway. Trump doesn't use email, uh, at least not very often. And so in this case, it's harder. The, the kind of evidence probably that you would look for in this case is a handwritten note from Trump because he did send some of those. Uh, you know, some sort of written correspondence in his distinctive handwriting showing he understood what was going on. And, and that's not impossible. In the uh, Trump Foundation case, they did actually find some notes where Trump had written, you know, use the, the charity's money to pay off my business debt. So that's not impossible. There was some sort of handwritten instruction. The other way to do it would be through witnesses, witnesses who could say, look, I was in a meeting with Trump and he said this and I took notes from that meeting. And here those, those notes are. The, the difficulty is that the Trump organization is a very small place with only one real decision maker, Trump. And the people around Trump are either family members or people who've been around him for a long time. Yes. So you may have heard this name, Alan Weisselberg, this guy who's Trump's longtime chief financial officer. The DA is trying very hard to flip him, to turn him into a witness against Trump, because he's, he's the kind of person who would be able to speak to Trump's intent, even if there's no email. Yes, 
Alan Weisselberg, of course. And so is this potentially, as you say, one way, if you can put pressure on somebody that close to Trump, you might be able to get at his intent. In addition, you said the DA is putting a lot of pressure on him, but also uh, Alan Weisselberg was back in the headlines as the subject of a separate attorney general investigation for his personal tax dealings. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so the, the allegations against Alan Weisselberg that we know of involve basically that he and his son, Barry Weisselberg, who also worked at the Trump Organization, were getting allegedly tax-free benefits from the company. So Barry Weisselberg lived rent-free in an apartment the Trump Organization owned. Uh, Alan Weisselberg may have gotten similar benefits in terms of housing or cars or vacations, things like that. And if you are given by your employer benefits like that, fringe benefits as part of your employment, you're supposed to pay income tax on that. Uh, in most circumstances. And if uh, they didn't, if Barry Weisselberg, Alan Weisselberg got benefits that they didn't pay taxes on, uh, that could mean some liability for one or both of them. And, and pressure on either of them would mean pressure on Alan Weisselberg, uh, who's the person that they, they're looking to flip. Yeah. So you are convinced that they're definitely using him as leverage. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it may be, you know, I think we should be prepared for the, the idea that they might charge somebody other than Donald Trump in this situation, someone like Eric Trump or Alan Weisselberg, who does use email, who does create a paper trail. You know, if they think that there's wrongdoing, but they can't they can't trace it all the way up the chain to Trump himself, it may be that they try to charge somebody else, either with the hope of flipping them against Trump or with, you know, saying that's as good as it gets. And in their defense, Trump and his allies have basically been seizing on comments made by the attorney general that she basically has like a political vendetta or that you know, she's really against him and, and for political reasons. That's right. When she ran for uh, attorney general in 2018, Letitia James, who's the AG now, she ran for that office in 2018, you know, basically as a it was a crowded Democratic field. And she wanted to stand out as somebody who was really going to go after Trump. So she said, you know, he's going to know my name. We're going to go after him. We're going to challenge his policies. We're going to investigate his family business. Uh, so that, that will, that's been Trump's argument now in the media. And I'm sure if there's ever a case brought by her, that will be his argument in court is, look, this person had a vendetta against me from the very beginning. She was, you know, uh, she decided there was a crime and then went looking for evidence to prove it. Um, and I'm sure James's response would be, you know, you don't have to trust, take my word for it. That there's a case here. Look, let's look at the evidence that I found. So I don't think that's like a, a fatal flaw in James's case. There's elected DAs and attorney generals all over the country. And, you know, their political rhetoric isn't disqualifying for them. But I think no matter what, for political reasons and for legal reasons, if they're going to try to take on Donald Trump, they better have something good. They shouldn't try to bring a halfway case into this courtroom because they could get thrown out. And it could also really hurt them in the court of public opinion. Hmm. Well, we're talking about New York Attorney General's announcement that her office has opened a criminal investigation of the Trump Organization. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced this week that her office has opened a criminal investigation of the Trump Organization in a joint effort with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And we are talking about what that means for the Trump Organization, the former president, his associates and family. 
with David Farenthold, a reporter covering the Trump family and its business interests for The Washington Post. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Share your questions and comments with us. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Dale in San Francisco. Hi, Dale. Hello. Hi, what's on your mind? Hello. I just it, I it's been so obvious just watching this go by over the years that there's all kinds of stuff going on with money laundering and the LLCs and juggling things. And this is a general rule. I hope he ends up becoming the poster boy for future pursuit of white collar crime and the abuse of the use of the LLC as an entity. Um, there's just so much going on there with the wealth continuing to do to harm our society and deny tax dollars to our, our funding our government etc well, well dale thanks for sharing your point of view one thing he's making me think of david Ther- Ferenthold is is just how unprecedented this is to some extent that a former president could face criminal charges uh, that comes with it even the possibility of prison time i was reading an atlantic piece that was really making the point that this is not a place our country has really ever been in before. That's right. Uh, The closest parallel in modern times was Bill Clinton. There was an FBI investigation of Bill Clinton for the pardons he gave out in the last days of his uh, presidency, but, you know, he never got charged. It was not, I think, even that well known at the time that it was happening. These two investigations, and and there's more than this that have to, you know, there's an investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, of Trump's interference in the Georgia vote counting in 2020, there's a, a criminal investigation in D.C. where the D.C. attorney general is investigating him for his role on January 6th. Any one of these bringing a criminal action against the, pre- the former president would be unprecedented. Um, and I, you know, I hope that, that our system would be strong enough to handle it. But you can imagine the un- emotions that would be unleashed by Trump and his supporters if this kind of thing does happen. Well, Sang asks, is there a realistic timeline for this investigation to conclude? And do you think that a criminal indictment of Trump and his family or organization will make the GOP congressional leaders start backing away from Trump? Or will it have the opposite effect and embolden them to come to his defense? On the question of timing, uh, you know, you hear different, talking to people who have talked to the DA's investigators, you hear all different prognostications from indictments in two weeks to, you know, sometime next year. My guess, so the, the DA, uh, is who is the one who probably will make the ultimate decision on whether to charge Trump or anybody around him, just got Trump's tax returns in February. That was millions and millions of pages of documents. And he's his folks have been going through them. You know, he's got forensic accountants, lots of prosecutors. But it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff. I think that it, the the timeline, the only timeline I'm sure of on the DA is that he is leaving office. Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan DA, is not running for re-election. So he leaves office at the end of this year. I imagine, this is since this is one of the most high-profile things he's ever done, he's going to want to make the decision to charge or not charge. So I, I think it's going to happen this year. But, you know, any time between tomorrow and December 31st would not be terribly surprising. Can you talk a little bit about that DA's investigation now? We've talked a lot about the attorney general's investigation. But I mean, the fact that Cyrus Vance has gotten a hold of Trump's tax documents, could you just give us a sense of the timeline and and why that has also probably extended the investigation time? Yes, that's right. So you think about the two investigations, the the DAs and the attorney generals have been running on different, on, on parallel tracks, but at totally different speeds. 
the attorney general's investigation was fast. They, they had narrowed down their topics to a small number of things they were interested in. They did all their interviews. They, you know, they, they got all their documents. By the end of last year, I think they were really ready to decide what to do. Since they were mostly a civil investigation, though, and civil cases usually go after criminal cases, they're waiting on Cy Vance. And Cy Vance has been sort of the tortoise in this tortoise and hare race. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have everything. He wanted to get millions of pages of Trump's tax returns, eight years of all his financial documents. And so he was willing to wait for that. Trump fought him. They went to the Supreme Court twice. Vance finally won February 2021. So now he finally gets all the things he wanted, and his investigation can really begin in earnest. What we've heard is starting around January, February of this year, Vance hired a former mob prosecutor to run this investigation, and they it really sped up. So I think he's caught up to sort of where Letitia James, the AG, was last fall. Um, but so now we're kind of dependent on Cyrus Vance, the DA. How much of these documents can he get through? What did he find? And mm-hmm. you know, when does he want to take action? What did he find? I mean, can you explain some of the kinds of things <sighs> these tax documents could reveal? Well, I can give you a sort of a, um, <laughs> my parallel is experience. So in 2016, I wrote a lot about Trump's charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation. Right. And it it filed tax returns, uh, which were public, unlike Trump's private tax returns. And they were prepared by the same accountants at Trump Org and the same outside accountants, this company called Mazars. So the same people put together those uh, those tax forms for the charity, which I know very, very well. And they were full of errors. Uh, there were improper donations that were covered up or, or, or hidden by fake donations that didn't really exist. There were there were all kinds of places where Trump was supposed to have said that he broke charities laws, but he didn't. Um, there were all kinds of mistakes, errors, you know, both errors that obscured uh, violations of the law and also just like typos and mistakes. So if the same people that I that made those tax returns did all of Trump's uh, business tax returns, I have to imagine there will be at least some mistakes. It just it seems like I can imagine there might be some fertile ground there just because I feel like I've seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the work product from these people. Right. We're talking with David Farenthold, reporter covering the Trump family, its business interests, business interests. He is a reporter for The Washington Post, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for his investigation of Trump's charities. And Michael writes, what lender is going to take a landowner's estimate of his property value at his word, even to refinance our house? The bank sent out an appraiser. Also, what is the statute of limitations for these possible crimes? Any insight into what Michael's saying? Well, the statute of limitations, I don't think is a problem. But the first thing he mentioned is a really good question. So one of the the situations here is Trump created these things called statements of financial condition. They were like his own sort of summation of what he was worth. And he would send those to lenders or potential lenders and say, hey, look at me. I'm a great credit risk. Look at all this stuff. Those documents were full of mistakes. They left out some debts entirely. In some cases, they they contained incorrect figures about how many houses Trump could build on a particular piece of land. They were not reliable. They were wrong, and usually in ways that made Trump look better. But there's two mitigating factors here. One, they they had a little statement at the front from Trump's accountants saying basically, you shouldn't take our word on any of this. Like we didn't check any of this, so you know, buyer beware. There's, you know, you you can't take our word that any of this is accurate. And number two, as the as the reader said, listener said, banks like Deutsche Bank or other banks that loan to Trump, like they don't just take your word for it and loan as big as these, you know, hundred million dollar loans. They have a team that analyzes, that looks at your finances. And so I think that would be the Trump's argument is like, well, who did we fool? You know, who was the who was the victim here? Right. We gave this stuff to, to Deutsche Bank, but then they did their own analysis and decided to give us the loan anyway. So if, if they are going to charge Trump or sue him over what he did in those loans, 
they're going to have to prove some level of deception that goes beyond just sort of sending somebody a favorable version of your assets. Well, a listener says that the prosecution's only going after him, so he can't be a candidate in 2024. Trisha in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Trisha. Hi. Um, I have serious concerns because Trump has really uh, amplified this idea that all politicians are corrupt. So his corruption doesn't dissuade them. Uh, I'm concerned that the trial could, he could use it as victimizing himself or the indictment and just, um, you know, further the, the rolling coup that has so many, you know, multifocal aspects to it, mm. the, the, the fraud in Arizona, the in interference with Georgia elections, et cetera, et cetera, the voter suppression. And it just seems to me, how do we not enter our place where we have a Hitler-like situation, a Nazi Germany sort of situation in America? Because well, Hitler was also considered a clown and was put on trial. And despite the underlying uh, legitimacy of the, the crimes against him and he was prosecuted for, he was, that's how he, you know, that was his launching pad. Trisha, yeah, sorry, I think that the connection is slightly, um, there's a lot of background noise there, but I think we understand what you're saying. I, I also, one of the things, I, you can feel free to react to what you heard Trisha say. One of the things that I think she's invoking is something that I've heard a lot, which is that ultimately, at least so far, Trump has been able to not really face any major consequences for things as major as two impeachments, fights over emoluments. I mean, there's just been so many things that have basically not necessarily hurt him. And if anything, has maybe strengthened some of this sense, as Trisha was bringing up, of being the victim here. Yeah, I I think that there is you know, I hope that these these prosecutors and you know the attorney general and the DA are thinking about this in the in terms of law enforcement, right? You, the, I, I want I don't want them to try to go after Trump because they don't like him politically or they don't want him to run again, anything like that. Um, you know, I think that they there is a political risk if they uh, the Democrats if they go after Trump and don't have the goods and can't close the deal and can't get him convicted. If this ends up with Trump going on trial and become being exonerated, you know, getting off on the charges or only getting a slap on the wrist. I think it would be a huge political boost for Trump because then you're not, you're seeing this guy, you know, he seems invincible. He took on the system, the corrupt system and he won. So I think that that, that has to be a factor in their calculations, right? Not just do we think we can prove that Trump committed a crime, but are we sure this is going to work? Is this going to you know, win us to battle in the court of public opinion as well as in the courtroom? Because if, if you take a shot at him and lose, you, you risk in, you know, giving him huge amounts of power, as the caller said. What is the reaction? What kind of reaction do you get to your reporting? For example, I just noticed today that you broke a piece about how Trump has charged the Secret Service more than $40,000 to use space at Mar-a-Lago with U.S. taxpayers footing the bill since he left office, right? This is some like $400 a night that he charges Secret Service to be able to be near him there. Mm -hmm. Do do people, uh, what what kind of reaction do you tend to get from, from readers, listeners, or the court of public opinion, so to speak? <laughs> well, it it really runs the game. And, it, that, and that's, I think people are really interested in those sorts of stories because it's, you know, there's a, 
there's a, a card cash benefit to Trump's power. And these are stories, we've been writing them since the beginning of 2020 about how Trump has used the Secret Service to basically put taxpayer money in his own pocket. He goes to his own properties, the Secret Service has to follow, and then he can basically charge them to protect him. Uh, and so he's doing it even in his post-presidency. He's charging, as you said, the Secret Service $396.15 every night at Mar-a-Lago so they can be near enough to protect him. You do get, you know, the, I, certainly you get readers who are like, so, or, you know, well, that's his right. You know, why do you want Trump? You know, do you think Trump should move to, you know, some other place? Um, I guess I, my reaction is I, I just want people to know that this is happening. I feel like there's so much sort of rhetoric about Trump or, or, or opinion about Trump. I just want to tell you what he's doing. You can draw your own conclusion and you can tell me if you want, but like, I want, just want you to know the sort of dollars and cents of what he's doing. And if you hear that, you can make your own decision about him and you can make your own decision if he runs again. Well, Stephen asks, why is intent required for conviction on financial crimes? Were we always told ignorance of the law is no excuse? <laughs> That's, this is a really good point. That's true if you're a bank robber, right? You can't say, oh, I didn't know that there was a law against bank robbery. But it, it, ignorance is actually defense on tax-related crimes and on some other financial crimes. If you can say to somebody, look, you know, this was, this was, you know, maybe this wasn't right, but I didn't know the law. I trusted my accountant here to tell me the law. And he said this was okay, you know, or, the, you know, this was wrong, but I can't be expected to understand tax law enough to know it on my own. That certainly is a defense. And so there's, that's why intent is so difficult in these white collar cases, and especially in a case like Trump, where he doesn't use email, you know, you're, you're looking for a case where you can be sure you can show the jury, look, this guy, someone told him that was wrong. And he said, go ahead and do it. That's going to be a hard thing to prove in any white collar case, but especially in a case like Trump where he doesn't make as much of a paper trail. Hmm. Uh, let me go next to caller Rafael in Newark. Hi, Rafael. Join us. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question involves the fact that there's been a lot of association with the Russian mob and Trump. Um, and why isn't he being investigated for money laundering to the extent that he should be? Because he's been using Trump Tower as a, as a, you know, as a transit point for Russian mob money. Um, he was investigated by the FBI. They found out that there was a gambling operation in his unit back in the 80s. And, you know, and, and all this stuff about Obama spying on him uh, was... There, there was no truth to that because the FBI has been investigating him for the last, like, 10, 15 years. He's been a bag man for the Russian mob. Rafael, let me see what David Farenthold has to say. Well, there certainly have been allegations. Uh, there, there was a, truly a gambling ring run at Trump Tower uh, for many years. I don't think there's been any proof that Trump himself was involved in it, but it was happening in his building. And there has been lots of allegations. Obviously, they, before the Mueller investigation, during and after the Mueller investigation, that Trump was somehow financially involved with Russia. Trump had a bunch of Russian investors in some of his properties, but you know maybe there was something beyond that that we didn't know. My reaction to that is what we've seen in the New York AG and the Manhattan DA's investigations is the broadest, most resource-heavy investigation of Trump by anyone ever. They've got his tax returns for the last eight years. So I don't know if that kind of connection is there, but I'm confident that this is the closest, this is the most anybody's ever looked. And so I, I think if it was there, these folks might find it. At this point, no charges have been filed, no civil proceedings brought. Can you 
run through some of the possible outcomes. Who could be criminally liable? Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, Trump himself. I'm realizing just as I ask you this, that a listener has also written in, I'd like to know more about the potential liability of Trump family members as well. Are they shielded from the investigation? They're certainly not shielded. The The investigation that the, the, the AG has done, which we know more about than the DA, was interested in Eric Trump. Eric Trump does use email, and he was involved in a, one of these decisions, that one of these transactions that the, the AG is interested in, a, a attempt to get a $21 million conservation easement on an estate Trump owns in, in New York. So Eric Trump's been questioned by the AG. Uh, I think if, if there is going to be anyone wrapped up in any of these cases of Trump's children, it will be him. Don Jr. and Ivanka don't seem to have been involved in any of the deals that are under scrutiny. It's hard for me to know because so much, I think so much of the DA's case is going to be made off the tax returns, and we know almost nothing about what was in them. It's hard for me to say, will this come back to Don Sr., the former president? Uh, will he be criminally charged? There's just so much evidence out there that somebody's seen and I haven't. Uh, but Don Sr. and Eric and Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, those seem to be the main inside Trump org figures that have been under scrutiny. And there's no doubt that no matter how this shakes out, that there's been a cost to the Trump organization now. I, I can't imagine anybody running out to want to give big loans to this entity at the moment. No, and I think that they lost a lot of lenders. They lost a lot of lawyers, insurers after January 6th. This also has to, has to have a huge cost on their operations, in addition to the costs that they've borne from politics and COVID. Um, so yes, to me, one of the, cr the crazy things about this whole episode is the origin of this. The origin of all this is Stormy Daniels. If Trump doesn't have his encounter with Stormy Daniels, then he doesn't have to pay off Stormy Daniels in the later stages of 2016. If he doesn't pay off Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen doesn't get charged with facilitating that and go to jail. Michael Cohen doesn't turn on Trump and tell the world Trump's business secrets and start both of these investigations, the DA and the AG. So it's incredible the sort of butterfly effect that that has come that has brought these two really huge investigations, unprecedented investigations, down in the head of Donald Trump. And Michael Cohen has been continuing to warn the Trump family that he knows a lot and has given over <laughs> a lot. Well, David Farenthal, really, really informative. Thanks so much for talking with us today. I'm so glad to be invited. Thank you. David Farenthal, a, a reporter for The Washington Post who covers the Trump family and its business interests. Thanks also to our listeners for their questions, their comments, their insights. And also my thanks to Susan Britton for producing this segment. We have another segment next on Family Dialects, so stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.